electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The continued rally in stocks, the S&P pacing for its best month in almost a year. How long can the run last? We'll ask another group of all-star investors today. The investment committee is with me as well. Let's first take a look at the markets. The major averages heading for a third straight week of gains. Today, though, losing across the board. The Nasdaq, the biggest loser now, down by more than 1%. We keep our eye on yields always. The 10-year note yield touching 170 earlier. It's dipped down to 164, but we do keep our eye closely there. Our first headliner today is one of the world's best ever investors. The fact is, when David Tepper speaks, markets listen. Let's welcome in the founder of Appaloosa Management now. David, welcome back. Thanks so much for being with us. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's great to have you, um, especially at a time where stocks are basically hanging around record highs. The 10-year, the yield's been ticking up. I said it touched 170 earlier. It's dropped a little bit back. Do you like the equity market here? You mean like I like you, Scott, or are you talking about like on a personal basis or personal, professional, like, however you want to characterize like, it, David? <laughs> um, look, I like it as a long term instrument that I think everybody needs in their portfolio. OK. Do you like it for the risk reward right now in stocks, given where valuations are relative to where rates are? As a trader, trader, you're asking me as a trader or as an investor, Scott. As an as an investor, David. As an investor, um, like like you know, I'll use a uh, it's like a Warren Buffett line. You know, it's a great asset for the long term. So, but um, I mean, look, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's any great asset classes right now. There's you know, people on your show have talked about the risk of inflation, and uh, the question is, you know, what the Fed's doing, I guess. Powell pretty much said he's going to taper today, um, you know, online when people expect it. Um, you know, the question is when will they raise interest rates and really what is the underlying inflation and how much is uh, endemic in the becoming endemic inside the economy. And that's really what we're dealing with right now. So, I mean, if you go down different asset classes, um, stocks, I mean, I, I don't love stocks. I don't love bonds. I don't love junk bonds. I don't like, you know, you know. <laughs> It's a question. What's the um, what's the best looking you know investment versus other investments when nothing looks that great? So what do you do? Are you raising your cash as a result of that? Have you have you taken your exposure to stocks down as a result of that view? Yeah, I mean we've been listen. We've been probably too conservative this year. I mean we've we've done okay because of where we were in the market. We were in commodities and oil, but. Um, and, you know, we, we continue to keep that exposure, you know, relatively low, but still invested. And, 
look, I think, like I said, I think you stay invested in the stock market to a certain extent. I don't think if you're, you don't have your highest concentration that you'd ever have, um, but you continue some investment. It's expensive to sell and pay taxes, and I don't think we're that sort of that sort of market where you have to worry about that I'm going to get out no matter what, and I want to get my, you know, I want to go short the market, and, you know, but I don't think it's a great investment right here, and I don't, you know, because I just don't know um, how interest rates are going to behave next year, and um, I don't know, um, <laughs> I think that there's a lot of people who don't know a lot of things, including this Fed, and it's impossible to know. I don't know how sh- what the you know, full employment right now is after if there's structural changes to the labor market and there's some things going on with inflation. And if there are, you know, and, and how long, as Powell said today, how long these supply uh, issues last and how people get used to a higher inflation rate. And quite frankly, the Fed doesn't know all these things either. So if there's, you know, if there's, it's a, you know, so it's a question of what, you know, if, if you do have higher interest rates or if they, you know, tapering creates higher interest rates, um, you know, you can't, you can't love the stock market as a trade, you know, necessarily. On the other hand, look, if, if bonds want to stay here at 160, you know, 160s, if the 10-year wants to stay in the 160s, the stock market will probably go up in the short term. And, you know, that's, you know, that's what will happen. Um, you know, it's a question. The problem I have with saying that is it seems so stupid to invest in bonds at 160. And yet, I don't know, maybe people will continue to do that if they think that rates are going to continue, you know, at least maybe stay where they are, even move lower. All of the risks that are out there, you have to balance that against the fact that there's still a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system. Right, David? Even with a taper, you still have the equivalent of QE2 and then some. Does that supersede many of the risks that you see out there? I don't know. I mean, listen, at some point, it's still value has to play some game. And, you know, look, I think you talk about liquidity, but I guess it's in you, you can talk in banks and money markets. I think Ned Davis did something where the percentage of the market, the percentage of assets, cash and money markets is one of the lowest percentages to the value of the market right now. So it's a question of what is that, um, you know, what is that liquidity? I mean, there's certainly a lot of liquidity, there's liquidity in excess reserves and banks that can go in. So. Look, I mean, you're, you know, (laughs) sometimes things don't have to be great investments and sometimes things don't have to be great shorts. And sometimes you guys like that. I mean, there's there's always some stock that something for you guys to talk about. So you're not going off the air just quite yet, Scott. But I'm hoping to to go for another 10. I, uh, you know, I I hope. (laughs) But let me let me let me ask you this. I mean, you from what I can tell, um, the best that we can tell from your your filings, um, you have a fair amount of exposure to the NASDAQ. At, at least you did. Do you like the NASDAQ in this environment with rates seemingly wanting to move higher? What do you tell our, our viewers about investing well, well, in look, tech and NASDAQ? Again, I just, you know, as I just said, as I was just saying to you, it's a question of how far you think the market can go down in different situations. So, I mean, and then you have to pay taxes on gains. We held some of these stocks for a long time. So then I have to, you know, my investors or me have to pay taxes. And if I like the stocks for long term, I don't necessarily want to sell them. That doesn't mean I haven't taken down my exposure. It doesn't mean I don't have, um, you know, NASDAQ futures, you know, that I'm short in some other way against my book in some fashion. Um, 
you know, in, and I might have some of that on to, you know, protect me from having to take the taxes on some of those individual names. But I, like I said, my exposure is not high right now, but I still am exposed to stocks. And I think people should be exposed to stocks for the long run. But again, you know, because we're in an uncertain period and I think, you know, you had guests on all week and I think it was Miser or somebody to talk about a binomial situation. You know, as far as interest rates are concerned, in some ways, that's not wrong. I mean, if you really have inflation become set in the economy and the Fed's behind the curve and they're not going to raise rates in the middle of the year, the, you know, <laughs> the bond market starts going up a lot and people think it's not going to go beyond 2%, but all of a sudden it's at 2.5%. I guarantee you, you won't love owning stocks that much that day, but you won't like owning bonds and you won't, and cash you can't, you're going to be getting killed by inflation. So let's this like one of those times. I mean, so you just have to stay with some things. Stocks may be, you know, as good as anything right now. That doesn't mean they're good. And as I said, I still own them. Right. So do you? I, I, I mean, I you know, like I always had the saying, you know, sometimes, and it's not one of those times. Sometimes there's times to make money, and sometimes there's times not to lose money. Okay. So this is, you know, in the short term, that might be one of those times. But I think that it's very uncertain. How interest rates are, and I don't want to say to people a certain thing because if I do have interest rates, um, point to the screen. If I do have interest rates uh, stay, you know, stable um, in the 160s, despite what I think that they should be higher myself, I think stocks will go up to the end of the year. If 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 people in bonds decide to stop being um, stop being victims of uh, what is it, Barnum and Bailey's? Uh, who is it? Who who said that Barnum? Who said the it was a sucker born every day. Um, you know, if they decide to not have these, these uh, you know, take that type of investment and, and, and the yields go higher, then uh, you're not going to be happy. But it's it's one of those sort of, like he said, binomial sort of situations. And I don't know where the bond market's going to go. And I don't know if people keep putting money in bonds. At this point, they do. And, you know, I can't, I can't, if in some respects, I can't explain a 163, um, 163, 164, uh, you know, tenure, you know, with what it looks like in the economy. And you have 5.4% CPI and it looks like the CPI is going to be higher, going to continue high for a little bit of time. And like the whole, you know, <laughs> it's one of those times that's just not great. And, and it doesn't have to be great. But there's always an individual stock for somebody. Sure. That will be an individual company in this country that will do good. So there's always stock picking and Something like that. I, I don't know if I have anything that's that great like that, but, you know, there always is something. What do you think happens to the market when the Fed actually announces the taper? Um, are we at ease with we, the fact that we know it's coming or is there still going to be a, a negative reaction? How, how do you view that? And do you think that announcement happens next month? Yeah, I think Powell basically told you it's happening next month today. I mean, you, can, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it's, good. it's a very high likelihood it happens next month. And quite frankly, I don't know exactly what happens in, you know, in the markets. It's depending, you know, with the taper that they do. I don't, you know, you're losing one of the prongs for uh, bonds. So, you know, they may be a little weaker. But you, like you said, there's liquidity on the side, depending on how people put money in. Um, you know, other, you know, <laughs> we depend on a lot of foreigners to own our bonds. And uh, that's very nice. And I'll tell, tell them thank you very much for that. Um, but, um, you know, it depends what happens after the tapering. What, what gets you to take your exposure back up? What do you have to see to make you feel more comfortable to do that? 
Look, I mean, like I said, if if we if I think we're going to sit here in this one sixties after the Fed announces tapering, then you could get a rally, and I hate to say that uh, there'll be like a trading rally, and you know you might get five or ten percent up, and you know I'll be looking to you know I'll go in and I'll get out, okay? Because I'll think I'll think it'll be crap, but I'll play that game. So if you're asking me, I don't love the market in the intermediate term, but mm-hmm. I, could I get a trading rally in here? Um, if I have stable rates and after the tapering, sure. You know, so, you know, you know, and then if it goes the other way after that, then it will go down. So I'm, I'm, I'm in Vegas and I don't really <laughs> like Vegas, you know, so. You know, I, I don't think I've ever asked you your view on crypto, whether you whether you hold any, what you think about it as an asset. Um, how do you? I mean, it's gold to me. I mean, it's a store of value to me. So I don't really, I have, I do have some, it's relatively small amounts. It's really because my son was into it, but um, I'm not really an investor in crypto. I mean, I, you know, I wish I, wish I was this year, you know, and there's some of that. Uh, I was looking at the chart. I, it looked like, I looked at the shape of the chart, but it looked a little, little bit like a toilet to me, but that's, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. <laughs> but you have, a, you have just a little bit, but you do, you do see it as a store of value. Because, I mean, that obviously is one of the principal discussions of whether it is or it isn't. I think it's a store of value to a certain extent, yeah. I do. I think it's, you know, it's like gold to a certain extent. So it's just a question, what should be the price? And the price of gold, you know, the downside of gold always seems to, te- you know, the demand for gold and the price of bringing it out of the ground. The price of this is how much it costs to mine it. You know, you know that's a lot lower than the current price. So we, We've but, talked to... Uh, People, you know, uh, you know, they have or whatever it is. I see it right there, you know, 60,000 or whatever today, you know. So, I mean, in it, and if the Fed, you know, delays raising rates and such and such, sure, it can go up and it can go up wherever it wants to go up. Let me ask you also about high yield, because I know that you've been paying attention to the charts of what high yield has done. Um, spreads are super tight. Rates are unbelievably low. Um, what do you make of what's happening in high yield and how long can it remain that way, do you think? Well, listen, I was in the high yield market for a long time before I started Appaloosa at Goldman Sachs. I was the head trader at Goldman Sachs on that desk. Um, listen, you can get the markets, you know, the spreads in the markets in the two, you know, 280 somewhere, I guess, on a cash index. I mean, it can stay there for a couple of years and you can get excess returns. But if you look at the chart, at some point, you're going to get your uh, your derriere handed to you there. But in the meantime, you know, you can pick up nickels in front of that steamroller for the next year or two. And hope you get out of the way in time. Yeah. David, I appreciate you so much being with us. Um, I wish you the best. How's your, you, football, how's your football team going to do between now and uh, the end of the season? Let's, <laughs> let's end it with that question. Well, listen, I hope they win. So, you know, I, I'm not going to make any predictions. I mean, we got a good bunch of guys and, um, you know, I'm hoping for the best, you know. So, uh, you know, sweet. I actually have my, um, I don't know, I can't, if I stand up, I don't know if you can see it or not. I have my Carolina, I'm, I'm showing too much leg. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, um, I have my Carolina Panther uh, shorts on there. So, the reason I was nervous is because I might be going commando right now. So that could be a problem if I lift it off too much. That would be a very big problem for, yeah, for, big for, problem. for you more than us. Maybe our <laughs> viewers, too. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about your football team, but we're going to stay away from it. Yes, let's please do that. <laughs> okay.
Uh, all right, my friend. Uh, again, thanks for being part of our, our 10-year uh, anniversary. It's great to hear you. I know you don't do a lot of this, um, and I'm, I'm really glad that our viewers could hear from you. Well, this, this, this is for you, Scott. Special. Thank you, David. That's David <laughs> Tepper, uh, Appaloosa, joining us there. Still ahead on the half, our investment committee weighing in on today's market moves. Also joining us this hour, Loop Capital's Jim Reynolds, the investor, Michael Ovitz, and Double Line's Jeffrey Gundlach. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, let's welcome in our investment committee now. Kerry Firestone, Degas Wright, Surat Sethi, Steve Weiss, Pete Najarian, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Weiss, I'll go to you first. Um, yeah, I see the Carolina Panthers hat for obvious reasons. What would you make <laughs> of what your buddy had to say about the market in, in the more near term? Well, it's been pretty consistent in terms of his thought process over the last couple of months or so, or so I'd say. And, you know, he's done pretty well. Uh, he's spoken about his shortened treasuries before and done pretty well in that, as has Rick Reeder. Uh, it makes sense. You know, he, Dave is he always lives to play in the, another day. So he's he's not that exposed to equities, but he's not bailing on the markets. So it makes a ton of sense. I'm glad he's keeping some cash there, which I intend to win in our next golf outing. So for me, it was typical day. Very, very insightful and very clear language. So, so Pete, um, you know, look, you're, you're a shorter-term yeah. guy than, than many. Um, obviously, you do have some yeah. long-term investments and positions that you intend on keeping mm-hmm. on for a long time. But what about his view of what may happen in the near term? You know, obviously, a lot of it is pegged to where rates go from here. Maybe the Nasdaq's getting nervous about mm-hmm. that, and that's why you're seeing it down now. Uh, by 156 points. As I look, that's greater than 1%. Yeah, it's a significant pullback, but we've seen this time and time again, Scott. I mean, quite frankly, we've talked about volume, velocity, and all those different things, volatility. And I think the interesting thing is, and I just mentioned this the other day, but the NASDAQ was 14,200 just a couple of weeks ago here. We're sitting at 15,200, at least before this pullback. So We've had a pretty big run, obviously, and with that big run, you expect some pullbacks here and there, and I think we obviously delivered because of what we're seeing in terms of some of the NASDAQ stocks, including Intel, dragging things down. So 
I, I think that David obviously is as sharp an investor as there is out there, but I am a lot more short-term than he is. The short-term has created all kinds of opportunities. In terms of longer-term, I think it's a much more difficult uh, way to view the markets right now because of the movements that we are seeing, because of the velocity that we are seeing. I think David Tepper uh, really put it out there very, very plainly. He just said, look, this market looks very interesting, but there's a lot of potholes along the way as well. I mean, Surat, the bottom line, um, you know, yes, while he, I think, is clearly hedged um, and he's maybe conservative about his view in, in the near term, if rates remain, let's just say, around this area, he also says that the market could go up, you know, a decent amount. I think he said something to the effect of five to 10 percent, maybe between now and, and the end of the year or, or around that time frame. That is that how you see it as well? We're just so specifically pegged towards where rates go. I, I do. I mean, in a sense, uh, we've seen this growth in value trade and, you know, rates go to 1617, money comes off growth, goes into value. If you stay around here after the earnings we've just had, say, in the financials and in some more of the companies, if you get a little more clarity for the short term uh, in the next couple of quarters and rates are here, you could see some more money going into stocks that people know have earnings tailwinds like the financials. Uh, like the Morgan Stanley's of the world. So absolutely. Now, if rates start moving, volatility, you know, and volatility goes up and rates go through 2%, I think you could get some money just coming out of equities in general. And I think that's kind of what he was trying to say. Well, what's, what's so interesting right now, Degas, for a, for a guy who's got Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Alphabet in his book, as you do, um, how concerned are you with the activity in the NASDAQ and the 10-year? Yes, Scott. So what we're looking at is that where can we invest? And so to answer your question, we're want, we want to identify those companies that have pricing power. And pricing power means that there's increased demand for their products and services. There's no pure substitution for their products or services. And then lastly, the barriers to entry are high. So we like the companies that are reporting next week. We like those companies because they have pricing power. I hear you, but we both know that that's not going to mean one bit of difference if rates continue to go up and the NASDAQ starts to really uh, get in trouble. People aren't going to sit here and talk about pricing power. They're going to say interest rates are moving up. I may want to get out of tech and a source of funds may be the ones that have done the best, those being the biggest and tried and true names, as I just mentioned, Degas. Yeah, so but what, what we would say is that you do not want to time the market. So we would say stay in these companies that are, have pricing power again, stay in these companies uh, because ultimately their business models are intact. And so the inflation may come into play, but once again, stay long these stocks because you don't want to time the market. If you try to time the market, you will miss the run that could happen. So once again, we say stay in the market, particularly in these stocks that have pricing power. Carrie, let's look at their business models. Okay, I hear you. Carrie, what's on your mind? I mean, we're looking in real time at the NASDAQ continuing to creep, uh, you know, ever so um, lower in the session. Is this going to be uh, an obsession for us now, watching the 10-year and watching the NASDAQ and thinking about the impact on some of the stocks that are the most widely held among our viewers, I'm sure? Well, we go through phases. So two or three weeks ago, we were very worried again about inflation and the 10-year and Evergrande. And at this point, you ask people what Evergrande is, and they're going to say it's a casino in Las Vegas. 
So today we <laughs> see the Facebook problem. There's an issue. Sorry, I had to say that. An issue about supply chain disruption hurting the advertisers that are providing all of the revenue for Facebook and Google. And, you know, that's the headline today. But uh, Microsoft uh, and Apple, which are the two of the, the big five, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and, and Microsoft, those two have outperformed the S&P this month when these uh, fears have crept in because they have the models which are, I think, best protected in an environment right now with supply chain issues, advertising issues, and, you know, concern about the 10-year is, you know, today's, today's problem. The others, uh, Google, fantastic stock this year. It's not a surprise that it's down a little bit. I mean, I think it was up 80% uh, for the year recently. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon, Amazon struggled because, yeah, their suppliers are, are worried about inventory and disruption. Right. And Facebook has the advertising problem. So do I think this is a long-term problem, I mean, over the next six months? No, because people come back to these stocks when they get to levels that they're considered attractive relative to the market. And okay. they still are the big, big growth engines. All right. Let me get to a, a couple of moves here before we uh, take a break and welcome in some of our other big guests of the, of the day. Weiss. Moderna initiated sell today at Deutsche Bank. Uh, Have you used that sell-off to do anything with your position? I did. And one of the best things about Dave, where he's made his money, when he has conviction, he goes in. You heard him say there's no conviction. I've got conviction on Moderna. This analyst didn't even speak to the company, according to my sources, and he calls it a concept stock. That's ridiculous. They'll have $20 billion in cash this year, less than 10 times earnings this year and next, and one of the biggest pipelines in the entire pharma biotech sector. So he's a pharma analyst. She was stuck to pharma. So, yes, I did add for a trading position on wow. top of a large core position. You're really, you're really taking this stuff personally with, with Moderna. I mean, it's not going to just go up because you, hey, you, you want it to go up. I'm just trying to be helpful to people, help them make some money. You know, I mean, you, you can't keep buying sports teams. you got to generate some cash to buy some more. Pete, what are you doing with Intel? Um, I don't need to tell uh, you what the stock's doing well, today. Yeah, you're exactly right. Down 10% looks terrible. Uh, you know what? When you look at what their guidance was, that was a real... Oh, wow. It's even dropped more. Okay. Well, <laughs> when you look at their guidance, it was terrible. I, I love Pat Gelsinger. I think he does a great job. However, a lot of what they're doing is spending, spending, spending. And the problem is that's killing the margins. That, that's that's going to be something that's going to be working against them, I think, for the next year or so. So... I have to reevaluate this one, Scott. I'm certainly not very pleased about what I'm seeing there. As a matter of fact, even when I'm looking at the data center group up 10%, that wasn't impressive enough either. That felt a little bit light. So when you're looking at the, the earnings that they had and you look at the projections going forward, it's very disappointing. Foundry is way off into the future. There's a lot of different issues, I think, that they're facing right now. All right, joining us next is Loop Capital Chairman and CEO Jim Reynolds. We'll speak with him when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
the jury is, is, is really out on whether it is or whether it's not. If inflation gets rampant, I guess it does have value. But will inflation get rampant? Or will the government come in, as I did in China, and just stop the thing? There's so many variables in it that it's a very difficult thing to invest in. You have this almost $5 spread between what IBM is really earning and what they claim they hope to earn on a quote-unquote adjusted basis this year. And this is just more financial engineering uh, that this company is doing. What I fear today is that nobody has any fear. Um, that tells me that the consensus is in the camp that they need to put more money on. Likely to have some corrections here, but, you know, we're long the market. Could you get another 5 to 8% out of the market? I think so. I mean, I don't see any reason why not. I think tech's got some upside to it that could be more significant. I think the Fed is committed to a position that just has to hope that inflation goes away because they don't really have the stomach to fight it. So they have to obfuscate the data. They've got a manager. manager. I rarely ever met any who can hold his jacket. Cope is phenomenal. And let me tell you something, he's done a great job and it will start to show itself. It's hard to be too negative. Um, I'd say we're, we're still slightly leaning constructively and, and slightly longer than, than average, um, but not, not exuberant. If the Fed hikes five times or more, that will likely topple the uh, real economy into a, into a low growth deflationary environment. There's going to be a lot of false positives where inflation does feel like it's more persistent. We're seeing it today. And whether it ends up, you know, being persistent or not, you know, I don't think anyone actually knows today. M my guess is it doesn't because of technology. I'm in the camp of those that expects uh, inflation to continue. And as a result of that, rates go up. And over the next five or 10 years, you'll just have a fairly significant headwind on a multiple uh, due to price. Oh, it's been a fun week for sure. And our next headliner is the founder, chairman and CEO of Loop Capital, a firm that ranked first in the categories of best banking firms for diversity and for women in a recent survey. Jim Reynolds joins us now. Jim, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Scott, always good to see you. Uh, great to be here. Happy 10th anniversary. Thank you so much. I know how important those metrics I just said uh, are to you. Uh, congratulations on that. And uh, we're obviously proud to have Courtney Gibson part of our team as well. Well, Scott, let me tell you, I don't know if you've heard about the, the breaking news today, uh, but Courtney has delivered a, a bouncy baby boy. Oh, is that right? Healthy, as of today. So on your 10th anniversary, she gave birth to a boy. She's, oh, man. And mom's doing well. <laughs> that is so good to hear. We wish her the absolute very best. We can't wait to have her back with us. Uh, that's just I'll amazing news. Th thanks for telling us that. Um, let me let me pivot to the markets, if I could. Our, our time yeah. is obviously limited, as you know. Yeah. Um, we just played sound from a collection of the big guests who've been with us this week. What's your current view? Stay in it. Uh, I think right now the inflation is, is definitely transitory. I think the innovative nature of many of the companies uh, will continue to fuel growth, both in technology, in healthcare in infrastructure and in industrials and in consumer. I, I do think, though, Scott, what I'll tell you, even though I am an in individual stocks, uh, it is truly going to be a stock pickers market. It won't be the wave of buying like we saw during the pandemic, like let's all go into the pandemic oriented stocks or let's all go into ETFs or let's all go into mutual funds. I think this is a good stock pickers market, good companies, 
innovative companies. And uh, I think you stay in this market. I don't see any scenario where you should sell it. Wow. What gives you such confidence, Jim, that it is transitory? Speaking, of course, about inflation, we've heard quite the contrary from so many different people this week. We have. And I think right now, because we're in the midst of it with our infrastructure fund, getting big construction bids, getting commodity price bids, the situation in China. Uh, One, the biggest topic that everyone's talking about, and I've been on the phone on for the last month, has been wage inflation. And I think wage inflation, just to get people off the sideline, is, has actually ramped up significantly from the past. But if you ask me if you'll continue to see ramp ups in wage inflation, I don't think so at all. After, after we get folks coming back to work and all the incentive programs in, commodity inflation, uh, because of what's happening with shipping and backlogs and those sorts of things, uh, we think is also transitory. So we think coming out of the pandemic, we're not surprised that we saw these bottlenecks. But we, we see a normalization over the next few months. You know, you mentioned your infrastructure fund. That's, of course, with Magic Johnson, $800 million or so under management. I have to say, LaGuardia is looking pretty good. LaGuardia is looking uh, pretty good. It was a long time coming. Yes, it was. There was a lot of pain amongst New Yorkers. But that airport now is, is one of the best looking in the country. We're now getting started on JFK Terminal 1, the international terminal. It will be one of the best looking terminals in the world when we're done with it. Uh, You know, as you know, we're doing smart cities, uh, Magic and I. uh, We're in negotiations in New Orleans. Great partners, Johnson Controls and Qualcomm, working with us to deliver smart cities. And Magic and I are probably going to start on fund two in the second or third quarter of next year. So all is well. And you're going to take your firm public next year, I understand. Is that still the the plan? Well, right now, you, you know, I'm on record. It's been in the press. We're exploring that. Uh, We took an investment from one of the best partners we could have at CIBC. Uh, We're really looking hard at at, uh, the the, um, growth of all the businesses in the firm. We've had amazing growth over the last couple of years. Scott, you you actually came to visit the firm when we were very small when you came into Chicago, but everything's growing. That is absolutely on the table. And I'm, I'm actively pursuing it now. My goodness, that was a long time ago. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for spending this time with us and, and most especially for delivering that news about yep. Courtney Gibson's special delivery. So uh, thank you for that. You be well. And thanks for spending some time with us today. God, thank you. And congratulations on your 10. All right. We appreciate right. it so much. That's Jim Reynolds joining us there. Our halftime 10 year anniversary continues next with Michael Ovich. You want to find out what he's investing in now. We're back in two minutes. Jeffrey Gundlach is the CEO of Double Line. He joins us now in a CNBC exclusive. Welcome back. It's good to see you. It's good to be here, Scott. Uh, congratulations on all the great work you've done over the years. And you must be kind of running out of questions to ask by now after <laughs> action-packed few days. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're the last person. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Save the last for last. Yeah. yeah. Let me let me ask you this. You, you were you were with us back in July. You said the biggest case for stocks is that they're cheap to bonds. You said, "quote I think you're okay holding stocks at these levels." Here we are at record highs. What about these levels? Are you still okay holding stocks, Jeffrey? A little less okay than I was back in July, simply because the Fed is uh, starting to look seriously at tapering. And the, there's so, what I call almost Gunlock's investment constant, which is if you divide the uh, market capitalization of the S&P 500 by the size of the Fed's balance sheet, you almost get a constant. It's remarkable how stable that relationship is. 
And so with the Fed starting to taper, it's getting a little bit more of, of a cautionary situation. Also, keep in mind that the Fed reducing its purchases is reducing stimulus from the system. We've had the Fed funds rate at zero for a long, long time with a brief interruption. And the Fed thankfully never went negative, but they did a couple of times go to extreme quantitative easing. And there's a model at the Atlanta Fed that tries to divide uh, what is the kind of quantitative, the, the stimulative effect of quantitative easing. In other words, if you didn't do quantitative easing, but instead went negative on Fed funds, how negative would you have to go to uh, equate to the amount of stimulus that the quantitative easing provides? And that model shows about a negative 200 basis point Fed funds rate is effectively enforced with the effective quantitative easing that we've been doing. So if we take away the quantitative easing by middle of next year, which is what Jay Powell has been saying, I think again today, uh, that's equivalent to about a 200 basis point tightening of the Fed funds rate, which is probably going to be uh, difficult for the market to digest. Even, uh, in, even, even if even if you still have so much liquidity in the system, I, I know I keep repeating this metric, but I think it's important. It's the equivalent of QE2 plus. So it's not like the punch bowl is going completely dumped in the sink. Well, in particular, because there's still very high cash balances as a consequence of the government's money spray of many trillions of dollars, which is responsible for all of our economic. I mean, when, when the economy rolled over into the, into the abyss, in the second quarter of 2020, uh, nominal GDP dropped by about three and a half trillion dollars. And since then, uh, since then, it, it's rebounded all the way back up uh, by, by that amount and a little bit more. But the budget deficit, the national debt has increased by 25 percent of GDP, which is six trillion dollars. And the uh, trade deficit has increased by a couple percent of GDP. So we've really uh, not Except, but for the stimulus and but for uh, imports with uh, consumers' money from the money spray, we really haven't had any economic growth. So we have a really interesting situation regarding, obviously, inflation, where we, no one talks about temporary anymore. Everybody was surprised how high inflation got. When we talked in July, we we're talking about how this inflation rate wasn't going to go away. We believe that it's almost certain that 2021 will end with a five handle on the CPI. It's at 5.4 and it's going higher in the next couple of readings, thanks probably primarily the price of energy. And we don't think inflation's going below 4% anytime in 2022. And so uh, the other thing that's interesting about inflation is the PPI, which leads the CPI, has risen by more than 0.5 every single month in 2021. So we have the most negative interest rates we've had, uh, really going back to Jimmy Carter days, and it's really uh, an issue. The, the thing that's transitory, perhaps, about inflation is some of the commodities like lumber has fallen down. But there are two uh, factors waiting in the wings to keep the inflation rate elevated. One is wages. Uh, wages are very interesting. They've exploded on the low end. From the 16 to 24-year-old cohort, wages are just sky high. And they haven't risen for age cohorts above that, interestingly. Uh, they've kind of leveled out and but are not rising. Real question is, will the low level of wage wages for for first time workers start to push up supervisory uh, wages? And I think the answer is yes. But more importantly, more importantly, rent is going to go up or shelter, I should say, which is one third of the CPI is going to go up for sure. In fact, the owner's equivalent rent, which is a concoction that goes into the CPI that's 
pretty much just a construct and not really a fact, they show it rising over the last 12 months at 2.9%. But the Case-Shiller median home price in the United States is up 20% year over year. And there's some rent data series that are pretty, pretty reliable that show that in the last six months alone, median rent has risen by 10% plus non-annualized. So it's almost certain that we're going to get persistently high inflation thanks to the, uh, the, sh the shelter component going up, so perhaps wages too. So the negative interest rates we have today are wickedly unattractive, but they do support still, like I said in July, uh, not as much as July because stocks are up and yields are up, mm -hmm. but stocks are still not overvalued versus, versus government bonds. So what, what's the critical level we should be watching and that you're watching on, let's say, the 10-year? Well, I think uh, 2% is really the key. Uh, we were looking for the, the five-year to go up to 125 to 130. And that's really the one we're looking at the most right now is the five-year. It's been, it's been the real mover. And it really factors in what people really think about the intermediate term for the Fed. Uh, we are targeting about 125, 130. And I'm not surprised that we started to get some relief off of that. The 10-year uh, up at about 175 is sort of comparable to the five-year at 125. But I do think that we will take a peak at uh, towards 2% on the 10-year before year-end. Mm. So if before you said um, the, the right portfolio mix, if you will, and, and I know our, our viewers are interested in, in hearing an update on this, if there is one, was 25, 25, 25, and 25. Stocks, gold, long-term bonds, and cash. Have you adjusted that now based on your, your current view? Yeah, I adjusted it actually several months ago. I thought we talked about this in July, and that was 25% cash is too high uh, against a zero interest rate on cash and against a, a 5.4 CPI. And when I say gold, what I really mean is real assets, which includes commodities broadly and real estate. So right now, I don't think it should be 25% cash. I think it should be down at, at, at call it half of that, 12.5%. I like stocks at 25%. I like European stocks. I've switched from U.S. stocks to European stocks several months ago for the first time in the history of Double Line, which is 12 years now. Uh, we, we bought European stocks, and it always feels really weird when you've avoided something and it's been the right thing to do, and all of a sudden you decide to take the plunge. And it really hasn't worked, owning European stocks instead of U.S. stocks since then, but it hasn't not worked. They basically have moved up in lockstep, which is really interesting. Why is now the time? Why is now the right time? Because the dollar is going to go down and European stocks are very cheap compared to U.S. stocks. And the European economy is a little bit more oriented towards the economic situation that we're in, I think, than the U.S. consumer-based economy uh, so largely. But the dollar is going to go down. I don't not, I'm not sure it's going to go down like this week or this month or this quarter. But the, the, the biggest factor in the dollar, uh, the highest correlation is the twin deficits. And the budget deficit, of course, has exploded to levels never seen before. It doesn't look like it's going to relax very much, although the spending in Washington, thankfully, is running into a little bit of a headwind. And the trade deficit has increased. When you get the twin deficits increasing, it's very highly correlated to a negative dollar trend. And the dollar has peaked out. It peaked out at 103 on the Dixie Index twice. It double topped back in January of 2017 and then back uh, in this cycle as well. Uh, so it's down at below 94 now. Uh, the real key is if it impulses below 90, then it's time to buy emerging market equities and the, the European equities will continue to do well. We, don't, we haven't owned uh, emerging market equities. They've been very challenged 
with the COVID situation and the economic situation, but they're very, very cheap. It's just a question of when the dollar starts to go down. Hmm. Uh, that will that, that will lead to, especially for dollar-based investors, it'll lead to very outside outperformance. The case, the Dr. Schiller's CAPE ratio is elevated on the S&P 500. Under normal circumstances, you'd say it's overvalued, except for the fact that bonds are so overvalued that stocks sort of look cheap. But the emerging market CAPE ratio is less than half that of the United States. And though it might seem that that should be normal because the United States is more reliable, it's actually a fact that historically, over multi-decades, there have been numerous periods when the CAPE ratio of emerging market equities was higher than the CAPE ratio of the S&P 500, which, although overly simplistic, suggests that it's not folly to believe that under the right circumstances, emerging markets could outperform the U.S. by fully 100 percentage points. And over a multi-year time frame, we expect that's going to happen. It's just a real difficult situation of when is this going to improve. Also, so 25% stocks. I also like real assets. I like commodities and real estate more than gold. Gold will be well when the dollar starts dropping also, but commodities are unbelievably strong. But for the fact that they haven't had any correction, I'd be wildly bullish on them. They've gone up 75% since their bottom last year, and it almost doesn't matter what index you look at, especially in industrial materials, everything but interesting gold and silver. So uh, th- that might up 75% seems like a lot, but the cycle of commodities is very long and commodities are still quite cheap on a long-term basis versus say the S&P 500. When the, when the worm turns, which it looks like it has on commodities from a very cheap level, historically, it's not foolish to believe commodities could outperform by several hundred percentage points. Uh, and, and that seems to be in prospect potentially. So, uh, Commodities aren't the greatest trade location right now because they're up so much. But I think I would have uh, I would have about 30 percent in commodities, maybe even 35 percent in this mix of real assets, mm. real estate commodities. And then the long term bonds do make sense because with all of this seismic shift in government policy and economies that are almost impossible to divine right now, with so many plates spinning in the air, you do have to worry with all of this debt about the potential for a debt deflation. I'm not predicting it. But you, you need you need those bonds there at 25 percent. Now that the yield is at two uh, percent or so uh, on the long bond, even above two percent, it is possible to make 30 percent on long term bonds is a hedge for your risky assets in a balanced portfolio. Because we've seen 30 year treasuries drop to uh, inside of one percent in the in the covid nightmare. And of course, 30 year treasury bonds in many, many developed countries are kissing the zero line as we speak. So let me ask you before we go, um, lastly, um, Bitcoin has defied many people's expectations, yours included. I mean, when we were last on, you said the chart looked scary and had lost support. Here we yeah. are. We're up 85 percent since then. Um, how do yeah. you view it? How do you view it today? Well, it's it's scarier. The chart's scarier today than it was in July <laughs> because we have a, we have a double top at 60 plus thousand that we basically did a blow off this week, it looks like to me. And now it's reversed back below where the top was. So I really think that a lot of things crescendoed this week. I think the bond yield rise has crescendoed this week. We're probably going to get some relaxation in the near term. Bitcoin, et cetera. Even oil, I think, has has done that. So I think we're in a counter trend move in the weeks ahead. So everything that sort of worked for you in the last few weeks, I think it's time to fade. See how it all shakes out. Jeffrey Gunlock, thank you so much for being a part of our special week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Judge. Talk to you later. Yep. Appreciate it very much. That does it for us. Have a great weekend, everybody. The exchange begins right now. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.